Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. Hey, it's good to be with you in this Christmas season. It's so great, isn't it, to... Uh, reflect on the Lord and what he's done at this time of year and to press forward with just so much freedom and joy and liberty when they're trying to scare everybody again about Omicron and uh, you're going to have to wear your mask having turkey with your <laughs> your family and just I mean it's absolutely ridiculous we were on uh, Delta flying to we were Tammy and I along with Pastor Rob uh, we're in Mar-a-Lago uh, last weekend, and uh, we were uh, there's about 800 people there fellowshipping around the the pool, and President Trump came out and chatted with us a little bit, so that was a surprise and fun. And but uh, on the way there and back, Delta's rhetoric just had gotten stronger since the last time we flew. That you know every time you take a bite, you have to put your mask up after the bite or after the drink. Each time it was. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. It's like some some science fiction type of uh, scenario as we're all breathing on each other all the time anyway. It's, it's nuts. So it's wonderful to be here and to celebrate Christmas with you guys because we're not afraid of Omicron. We, we fear the Lord, therefore we fear nothing else. Amen? Amen. Amen. We are reading through the Anchored in the Word series. We're going to be looking at the faithful church because in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see Jesus' report card that he gives to seven churches. What if Jesus showed up on a Sunday morning, hung out with us for all the services, and as he's walking around, he's got a little clipboard, and he's writing things down. Now, if you've ever been under review, when people write things down immediately, you're nervous, right? You're thinking, oh no, what are they writing down? What am I going to be written up for? And yet Jesus in his love is coming in love to his church, but Jesus is not afraid to share the truth in love so that we will grow in our walk with the Lord. Now in all the churches, and I'll briefly highlight some of the, the, the main item that Jesus had an issue with that church. Now that's not to say he didn't say some good things about them and encouraging things, but Jesus has a model. He says, I know what you've been doing, and then he always lists the good things. I've always wanted to implement this when I'm ministering to other people that, and I have to bring a word of correction. I always want to point out, first of all, the good things that they're doing, but here's something we got to work through. And having had a large staff in the past and working through those things, it's tough to work with people and walk in love and to see correction come so that there's a fruitfulness because oftentimes people are not open to correction. Have you figured that out? Some people do not want to grow and learn. And there's a wonderful proverb that Solomon gives us. He says, a fool hates correction, but a wise man loves rebuke. And so that, that understanding that if you're wise, you know that if you get corrected and then you change course, you're going to be wiser. You're going to be better for it. But fools hate correction. 
And so as we look at these, uh, this one church in the midst of the seven churches that Jesus is sharing with us, we're going to learn some valuable things. And obviously, I chose the faithful church because I want to be a part of the faithful church, don't you? Right. We want to be a part of the faithful church. So if you made your way to Revelation chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 7. The Lord Jesus is talking to us tonight because we are his church. And he's ministering these words to our souls as he has for 2,000 years to churches throughout the world. So take this to heart. This is not a church over in Asia Minor, though it originated there. Tonight is for the church of Newbury Park. And to the angel of the church in Newbury Park write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Heavenly Father, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name that your spirit would now open our eyes and our hearts to discover wonderful things and to grow in our walk with you. Jesus, we just receive all the instruction you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. There was an elderly man in a South American village And he had a son late in life. And this son was the joy of his life. And what a faithful son he was. He took care of their small farm. He tilled the ground. He planted his father now elderly, could no longer work the soil, and was probably not far from death. Some local villagers were jealous of this faithful young man, and they lied about him to the authorities, and they came and arrested him and threw him directly into jail with no trial, nothing, just threw him in jail as things go and corrupt uh, communities and, and countries around the world. And so the elderly man, the, the spring came, and they had had no rain, and he went out one day feebly with a shovel to try to put the shovel in the dry dirt and start tilling the ground so that they could plant, he could plant and have enough food to survive for the coming year. And he was just too weak. He couldn't even put one shovel, uh, <laughs> turn one shovel full of dirt. And so he realized this is the end. It was a very, uh, the only way they survived was their land. And so he wrote a letter. It was kind of his last hurrah. He wrote a letter to his son in jail. And he said, son, I I don't know what to do. The ground's just too hard. I'm too old. And, you know, you're in jail and we don't know how long they're going to keep you. So I think this is it. And I just am resigning to the fact that this is, I'll probably starve to death this year. 
The son paced the sail back and forth, not knowing what to do for his father that he loved. And as a faithful son, he was just agonizing over the plight of his dad out there. And then he had a thought. He wrote back to his father and he said, Father, whatever you do, do not till up any ground on the farm because that's where the bodies are buried. Now, because the authorities were reading his mail, they rushed out to the property. <laughs> they dug up the property from one end to the other. They all went away finding no bodies and his son wrote a short note to his father and said, Dad, that's the best I can do. <laughs> what a faithful son. In our passage of scripture, we wanna be that faithful son or daughter in the Lord with the opportunities that Jesus gives us. As we pick this story up, first of all, we have a picture of where the seven churches were located. Modern day Turkey, uh, uh, Asia Minor back in the day, and they go somewhat in a circle. It's a bit of a triangle, but the way that the Lord writes to these churches, he starts at Ephesus, he goes to Smyrna, Pergamus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and that's where we're going to focus, and then Laodicea. And I have been to five of these locations out of the seven. Two of them have no archaeology whatsoever, but I have been to a tour here after a pastor's conference one year in Istanbul, my wife and I went down here and we felt like royalty because I'd had my assistant book this trip with a guide and a, a driver to do this, but I thought we would be with 20 people doing a tour of biblical archaeology. And I showed up with my wife and uh, there was the driver and there was the guide. And I said, where's the rest of the group? And they said, you're it. And so we had this man to ourselves. We felt like, you know, quite a uh, quite special in this adventure. But it was so impressive, especially Ephesus. The British have been digging in the uh, excavations at Ephesus and then reassembling the faces of things for a hundred years. It's the most spectacular biblical archaeology that you can really discover outside of Israel. Now, it's in this order, in these churches that Paul, Paul had ministered to, and John now, the Apostle John, is writing the book of Revelation, but Jesus wants to address. And as he speaks to the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, before we get there, I'm just going to share with you one line as a way of exhortation to the other six churches. Now, to the loveless church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, you have left your first love. They were doing a lot of good things, but they had left their first love. You know, you can be busy for the king and stop loving the king. And that was the exhortation that Jesus had for the church of Ephesus. Each one of these things you might think in your own spiritual report card, where is your heart, your affection, your love for God? Has it waned cold? Then there was the persecuted church. There was no correction for them, only an exhortation that they had to face death with real courage. The Lord told them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The compromising church, it, they had those who hold on to the doctrine of Balaam and hold on to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the doctrine of Balaam was some, he taught the children of Israel how to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And the difference between the compromising church that we see here, there were people that believed that, but were not preaching it. And the next one is the corrupt church where they not only believed it, but were declaring these things. 
to the corrupt church of Thyatira, he says, you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Do you know when a church goes from compromise where people believe the wrong things in the pew to a corrupt church when they're preaching the wrong things from the pulpit? There are churches that are filled with people that they they hear a consistent diet of. There's nothing wrong with uh, sexual immorality. There's nothing wrong with same sex. There's nothing wrong with transgenderism. All of these things that there's a, first it starts as a compromise in, in people's belief systems, but then it makes its way to the pulpit to where now they're evangelizing people with their incredible uh, twisted sexuality, where the Lord keeps it really simple. There's two genders, male and female. I know this is new information for most of us, right, in these times, because now there's a, we have gender fluidity, which means I'm now on a spectrum. And today I might be leaning a little more feminine, and tomorrow I might be a little more masculine because I'm just willy-nilly all over the place. Whereas when I came into the world and the doctor spanked my butt, he said, pray tell, you have a boy. And the reality of this postmodernism that hates any binary categories is, is ludicrous and bizarre. And li- literally, it's delusional. It's delusional. It's gender dysphoria. It's gender confusion. Now, don't get me wrong. You can be tempted towards same-sex things, but you can be tempted towards heterosexual things or same-sex things. Some temptations take on all kinds of forms, Right? All of, us can, all of us are tempted, not can be tempted. All of us are tempted. <laughs> and if you're not being tempted right now, wait for five minutes. <laughs> you're going to have that experience of some kind of temptation. But that doesn't mean that this is the way you were created. It means that you're being pulled towards something that is outside of God's will. Isn't that what temptation is? Something that's pulling you outside of God's will. Well, then there's the dead church, which the Lord, this is fascinating because the Lord has nothing good to say to them. But he says this, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. He says, you got this reputation that you're alive, but you are spiritually dead. You know it and I know it. Nobody else knows it. Are you spiritually alive? Or do you still have a reputation that you're showing up at church, people still believe that you are that man of God and that woman of God, and your your faith is still the same, but you know, and God knows, you are as dead as dead can be spiritually in your soul. And it's only a matter of time before that deadness seeps out into real life to where everybody knows you've been dead for a long time. That can happen to us, right? We come to Christ, we're these passionate, on-fire people for God, and then we get old and cold in our walk with God, and our hearts are far from him. In these exhortations that the Lord gives, and then the faithful church, but the last one is the lukewarm church, which is, I think, the majority of churches in America that we see that have become woke, that they don't have the courage to stand up and declare the truth. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that's a startling thing to think of the Savior of the world that sacrificed his life, shed his blood on a cross for your soul and my soul to say, you know what? I wish you were cold totally just didn't even walk with me, or that you were hot, that you were walking with me in sincerity, but because you're this lukewarm, you know, it just makes me disgusted. I just want to throw you up. 
I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And that sounds like a strange, strange exhortation because I would think, well, if somebody's hot, it's better that they're a little lukewarm, right? Than totally cold, they don't know God or believe God. Not from Jesus' perspective. He's like, either love me and walk with me or go do your own thing. But stop playing this game that's in the middle. It's fooling you. I mean, you're the only one really fooling yourself. It's not fooling me or anybody else. All of those exhortations are very brief windows into those fellowships that Jesus had an exhortation to. But what about the faithful church? This is the church we want to be a part of. This is the church that I want my heart to follow after. And he tells us, first of all, we have this opportunity that the Lord gives us. The opportunity. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, verse 7, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. It's a picture of Jesus coming to them that he's the holy one, he's the true one, he's the real one. He's the one that can lead them in a beautiful way that honors him, and he's got this set of dangly keys. Like when you walk through this facility, if you're a visitor here and you have no keys, and one of the staff members, they have a wad of keys, and you have to go around with them, and they have the keys in front of you, and they're going to open doors and let you in or let you out, unless they don't have a key to a specific door. Now, this reality of Jesus having the sovereignty to open doors or to close doors in our life is something that you need to have a deep, familiar, experiential understanding. That Jesus, think back in your life at all the opportunities God has given you. He's opened up doors. He gave you this opportunity at this job, on this team, at that school, in, on the, in this club, wherever it is. And the Lord just, it, it's like you feel you're walking towards doors and those automatic doors. Remember, I remember when I was a kid and the automatic doors started happening. I would, you know, you know, you're playing back and forth and you're just you're driving the manager nuts by playing with the automatic doors. But it's like the Red Sea just parts, right? The door just opens up. Have you ever been moving through life and you just sense the Lord's smile in his favor and this opened up for you? You couldn't make it happen. You couldn't force those doors open. As a matter of fact, there's other doors that you and I want to go through, and we go towards those doors, and we're, you know, I want to do this. And the Lord's like, it's locked. It's bolted. I nailed it shot. You're not getting through. Right? He is sovereignly directing your life through open doors and closed doors. I can look my life as one whole series of God doing exactly that. I thought I wanted to go to the right, and the Lord closed the doors, and I ended up going to the left. We see him doing it all through the scriptures, sometimes through hard situations of closed doors. Think of Joseph. How is he going to end up to be the prime minister of Egypt? Through some tough closed doors. The Lord closed the doors on the affection of his brothers. The Lord opened the doors to slave traders to buy him. The Lord opened the door for a man by the name of Potiphar to open the door and to purchase him. The Lord closed the door because of Potiphar's wife charge about rape. The Lord closed the doors on him in prison. The Lord opened the doors through these dreams that a couple of the king's servants, the butler and the baker ended up in jail. 
And then the Lord opens the door and gives him favor. And now he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. How can you take a kid, 17 years old, that's watching over sheep in, in Israel and to bring him to the throne, the right hand of the throne of the most powerful man in the Mediterranean? Who can do that? The God we serve. The God that can open doors and the God that can close doors. So when he closes doors, you rejoice. You go, praise God. Even sometimes when your heart sinks, David knew what it was like for the Lord to open and close doors. The Lord, David told Nathan the prophet one day, he said, hey, I want to build a house for God. Nathan says, God's with you, David. Whatever's in your heart, just do it. Nathan goes to bed that night. The Lord says to Nathan, hey, you spoke out of turn. I don't want him to build a house. Go tell him he can't build my house. And so he had to go bring the bad news. David, you can't build the house. He was bummer. Okay. But he says, my son Solomon's going to build the house. And so I'm going to accumulate all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the material, all the stones. I'm going to do everything else. Because he said, he didn't say I couldn't do that. So he became the supplier of all the goods. So that when Solomon came to that spot, he's like, hey, dad's already got all the supplies. You see, when God closes doors, he opens other opportunities. And the opportunities that he's given us right now in this season of COVID is an incredible open door. And the doors that God opens, when we open the doors of the church, man tried to close the doors. But the doors God opens, no man can close. Amen. Even when it goes to court. God says, no, I got this. This is my house. This is my people. I open the doors. Nobody's going to close it down. So we have open doors that are now going to be in front of us. I have four verses that I work through every opportunity that I have. And just by way of uh, something practical for you to take with you, tuck away in your Bible, these are the first, my first thought is, is what's the opportunity? And it's this passage in Revelation 3.8. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Do I have an opportunity in front of me? Do you know that I've had over a dozen opportunities since I handed off my church four years ago in Idaho, and then I lived in New York, then I lived in Arizona, then I was back in Idaho. I've had over a dozen opportunities and offers to go into ministry, and every single one of them my heart just wasn't into. I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, it wasn't interesting, it wasn't unique, it wasn't, you know, anything. And then when Rob told me about, asked me to come here, I'm like, this is unique, this is amazing, it's scary, I might go to jail, I think I'm in. Right, you have to have that, you have to have that desire. So the opportunity's there, but the desire has to be there, as it says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I don't have to worry about opportunities or opening the doors. God opens and closes the doors, but he gives me desire because when that door is open, do I desire to go through that door? Because I had lots of doors open to me, but I didn't want to go through them. So the desire and opportunity did not match. But as I delight myself in the Lord, he will give me the desires of my heart. He knows what I need. Thirdly, is there provision? It says in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's one thing to have an opportunity and the desire to go through it, but I also have to feed my family. It's really unique. I don't know if you have that experience. You need food. You need to have, you know, you need to pay the bills. So the, the opportunity and the desire, I, I need to be able to supply through provision my, uh, so if I get a job opportunity, they say this is what they're going to pay me. I say, you know, can I, can I make it on that amount of money? 
And lastly, I might have all of that. I might have the open door of opportunity. I might have the desire to enjoy that. The provision, the paycheck may be good, but as I start to head towards that door, I just have this deep sense inside of me of no peace. You ever have that? You're just moving towards something and something doesn't seem right here. And you start backing up away from it and people around you are going, it's a great opportunity. I thought you wanted to do that, man. You told me what you would make. I know, I know, but there's this sick feeling inside and I've learned every time I violated going against the peace inside of me, I've always regretted it. There's not one time I have not regretted it. And it tells us in Colossians chapter three, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's a picture of an umpire. Like when, you know, that, that ball is thrown and it's a strike or it's a ball or it's foul. The peace of God is like an umpire in your heart to make sure you're exactly where God wants you. So when the opportunity and the desire and the provision and the peace lines up, now that might seem really simple, those four steps, those four things are not easy to line up all together in one opportunity. They're not. Usually one out of the four is missing. So these opportunities that the Lord brings to you and I, and he brings to us as a church and a congregation, you guys know we've been praying and looking for another building because we're having four services a weekend. We turn people away on special events and occasions, and only so many people can fit in here. And we would really love to have a bigger room to put more of y'all. But God has to open that door. That's our desire, but God has to open the door. But not only does he have to open the door, but this is Southern California, and that means it's going to be millions and bazillions of dollars, right? So, you know, if I was friends with Joe Biden, I would just have him print me a billion, because that's what they do in D.C., and then ship that. Never mind. Anyway, so... Jesus is also observing us, because he says, I'm... He tells this church, I put an open door before you, but what kind of resources, what kind of quality, what kind of character, where's where's my soul and what's going on with this church? And this is what Jesus, I love his observation because his observation is always perfect because he looks at the heart of the matter. He says this, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Because if the Lord was to tell me, I'm gonna open doors for you, but you need to be as brave as a lion and you need to be this and you need to be that, I honestly might falter a bit because I'm, I'm so human. But notice the low threshold he gives. This is a low bar for the child of God. He says, you have a little strength. The word little is microscopic. It's micro. You have, you have a little strength. You've kept my word that you believe this to be the word of God. And you've not denied my name. Jesus is still your Lord. Now, that's a pretty low bar to get through a door, don't you think? A little bit of strength. I love God's word. And Jesus is Lord, right? Let's go through the door. And we can all do that. Very few people can't reach that observation that Jesus is revealing to us that is going on for us to enjoy the great opportunity in front of us. But every time we have an opportunity and then we're going through it with our little strength, we have opposition. Don't we have opposition? We have opposition. We want to put a message out on YouTube and they put us in YouTube prison for two weeks. We want to do something on Twitter, and they Twitter fight us. They, where, wherever you want to go, you're going to have opposition. You're going to have opposition that the county supervisors want to sue us. They sue Pastor Rob McCoy and 1,000 John Does. I thought that was interesting words. 
they wanted which thousand of the 2,000 are they going to choose? Is it a lottery? I don't know. But you're going to have opposition. Now, for them there in their community of Philadelphia, there was a Jewish synagogue. The Jews really attacked and persecuted the early Christians. And it says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Realize this, that open doors and adversaries go hand in hand. When the open door comes, here comes the opponents. Look what Paul said when he was in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he's writing to the Corinthians. He said, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. <laughs> hand in hand. A great and effective door is open here in Newberry Park, here in our region. We're declaring God's word, but there are those who would be in opposition to us. Now, it's not for us, a Jewish synagogue down the street, it's more public officials that don't like that, uh, you know, they, they're all about this corona business. They want, uh, they want limits on how many people can come into the sanctuary. They want social distancing. They want masks. They want vaccines. They want mandating everything for humanity. And it's just a bunch of garbage. And they want to especially stop, I sincerely believe, because you guys realize, yes, it's a political, cultural war we're in, but you and I believe that it is a spiritual world war. It is a demonic attack of Satan upon humanity. And you know, when you're a shepherd, you want to love God's sheep and bring them into a place of safety. You want to feed them God's word. You want to minister to them God's love, joy, and peace. You want to be a source of encouragement. And when these wolves, whether they're false teachers or they're people attacking God's people or they're public officials, you've got to call out the wolves. And so that's our job as shepherds, to be strong against the attacks that would separate us because they want to shut churches down. Now, it, why would they want to shut churches down, but the liquor store, the cannabis shop, and the abortion clinic are all open, right? Because they, they can all do their thing. But because you and I, when we get together, it fills us with faith, hope, and love to courageously fight for liberty, and they don't want it. They want to try to squish that. They want to try to squish any dissent. You can look throughout history and see this unfold. The out that is coming for this church, and this is a promise that is for a future generation. I believe we're part of that generation in these last days because prophecy, oftentimes the Lord's speaking in a very local specific mindset, and then he'll leap out in prophetic ways to the end. And look at this, the out, the way out of a time of great tribulation that is coming that the Bible talks about at the end of the days. It says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon, notice, the whole world, not a localized way, but there's an hour of trial, a season, we know it to be a seven-year period, which really gets bad at the three-and-a-half-year mark, called the Great Tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Because we keep the command to persevere and to walk with the Lord, he says, you know, those who are walking with me, they got a little strength, 
They've not denied my name. They've kept my word. There's a time coming where the Lord is going to rapture his church out that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that he's going to rapture the church out before that great and horrible day. And he says to the faithful church that are walking with him and fellowshipping with him, that you and I get to get snatched away from planet earth before the most awful time. Jesus said, if that time was not shortened, there would be no flesh saved. There would be nobody that survived. So the Lord has actually shortened that period of time, that this seven years that's known in the Old Testament as Jacob's trouble. It's a seven-year period that God primarily turns his attention away from Gentile believers and really focuses on the Jewish people to bring about a revival in the last days. Now, this is a radical thing. It's a mind-blowing thing that the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, which comes at the end of the seven-year period of time, and if you've read, and we're reading through the book of Revelation, and if you read from chapter 6 to chapter 19, you have one emphatic impression. I don't want to be here. Right? You have the seven seals, you have the seven trumpets, and you have the seven bold judgments. And when you look at those 21 judgments that are happening, that there's an earthquake like the earth has never seen. There's creatures like you've never seen. Basically, it's an unprecedented time for planet earth that half of the earth's population, half, right now we're at 7.75 billion people on the planet. And shortly will be at 8 billion. So just imagine a time coming where 4 billion people on the planet through catastrophic judgment of God because they've rejected God is coming. And when you read it, you're like, I tap out. (laughs) Can I go to heaven? And we are gonna be watching. The beautiful thing is we're gonna be with the Lord in the heavens through that seven-year period of time, like the marriage, the Old Testament picture of the Jewish wedding. We're gonna be with the Lord. And then at the second coming, we're gonna be coming in the clouds with the Lord. So we're gonna be watching from the balcony, eating popcorn. Now, maybe not popcorn, but we have the tree, tree of life up there. Maybe there's Shekinah berries. I don't know what we're gonna be munching on. But this is the reality that this church and any faithful believer in Jesus has this promise. You are going to be rescued from the hour of trial that is coming upon the entire world. And when we see what's happening right now on a global scale, isn't it mind-blowing? We see right now. Do you know what the VAX passport's really all about? The VAX passport is about digitizing your health information so that they can then digitize your finances and move to a cashless society. And they can delete your bank account with one push of a button. It's about digitizing all of humanity, that we are headed towards a cashless period of time, that you can't buy or sell anything right now. You go into some stores and they say, hey, don't take cash. It's going to come to that. now. Then you have these cards, these debit cards, right, or a credit card. Now, you just have to take that one step further and put that mark on the right hand or the forehead, the mark of the beast or the political mark or the financial mark that basically just moves your debit and your VAX card information from a card to your actual body, your right hand or your forehead. And people have said, do you think that the VAX card is the mark of the beast? No. Not until they try to put the VAX card on your right hand or your forehead. At that point, I would be troubled. 
but the mark on the right hand of the forehead has went past vaccine things. No doubt it has a health component to it that all your medical information's on it, but it's about financially controlling you. This is what they do in a northern province of China. You have a social credit score, not like you have a credit score financially, that you have a social credit score. And so your credit score goes down. If you jaywalked, your social credit score goes down. If you have enough offenses, if you went to the store and bought, because they see all your finances, if you went and bought a six pack of beer, your social credit went down. If you bought diapers or you bought water, something that was healthy, your social credit went up. Everything, your entire life is digitized in northern China. And this is the model that they're using. Social credits are coming to America unless we stand up for liberty. That's why right now with the Biden administration setting aside $80 billion for the IRS to look into everybody's accounts that have a minimum of $10,000 per year going in and coming out. They're going to get involved in all of our bank accounts one step closer to know, digitize it, know everything that you buy or sell, everything you do, and then bring in social credits. Well, this is about 10 years away unless uh, Americans wake up and smell the coffee and stand for liberty. We were praying, and I did a live stream on it, for Sali Amarov, that was a uh, communist uh, individual that was... Biden wanted to make the comptroller of the currency, and she wanted to nationalize all the banks, which would accelerate that uh, very fast. But praise God, she withdrew because of the strong, liberty-oriented senators that were grilling her with questions. She, she stepped out. So every one of those things is a small victory. Fifth, we have the promise for us who are overcomers, and that is, he overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the, name, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. So the beauty of those who overcome, and when we get to heaven, so we're going to go to heaven, and the Lord says, this is a promise. He's going to make us pillars in the temple of his God. In the Old Testament, there are two pillars that are built that hold nothing up. What's the goal of a pillar? It's to hold something up, correct? But they had these two pillars called Jochen and Boaz. They actually gave them names. And it, it means to strengthen and to establish. And you have heard the terminology. It comes from that Old Testament picture and this picture that they're a pillar in their community. They're a pillar in their church. Now, have you ever thought about that term? You mean they just stand at church and hold up the roof? What's their deal? Right? It means that they're a person that is strengthened in their walk with the Lord. They're established in their walk with the Lord, and they are established within the congregation of the Lord. And he says, now when you get to heaven, when you overcome on planet earth and you get to heaven, you're going to be like a pillar. Because you see this pillar over here? It never leaves this building. It's always a part of it. That's what pillars, you know, they don't walk around. But it's a a metaphor of just being in the Lord's presence and in his house in heaven and never leaving. Isn't it great? Have you ever had the fear? I know I have bizarre thoughts sometimes. Have you ever thought, wow, well, if I get to heaven, I hope I don't mess heaven up, <laughs> right? Because you can mess all kinds of stuff up. Well, the devil fell from heaven and he took a third of the angels with him. So they kind of messed up in heaven. So I don't want to be a part of messing anything up. Well, that, that phase is all over. We're not going to mess anything up. We're going to be with each other forever. Isn't that awesome? It's going to be awesome to 
be in the house of the Lord. And then he says, on top of that, you're not only going to be in my house forever and ever and ever, which eternity, I can't even, it blows my mind to even think about it. But he says, I'm going to write on you the name of my God. I'm going to write on you the name of the new Jerusalem. I'm going to write on you. And it's like, I'm a, I'm a tapless virgin body. I've never had a tattoo. Not anything again. Hey, if you got cool tats, God bless you. I just want you to know that it sounds like I'm going to be super tatted up in heaven. I'm going to have the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, Jerusalem. I'm going to have, I'm going to be, even Jesus in 19, when he shows up, it says, on his thigh are written the words. He's all tatted up, right? The word of God. <laughs> and so the reason I'm not getting tattooed now, because I got a lot of tattooing that's going to happen one day in heaven. So I'm, I'm all good with that because the Lord says he's going to do it. Lastly, as we wrap it up, it seems like a almost a impractical way to uh, end things unless you really know human nature, which Jesus does. He says this to all the churches, and he says it through his sermons in the Gospels, too. And you might just blow over it like it's a filler sentence. But that is the obedient, the sixth thought in this passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Have you realized, as a parent who raised two kids, I learned very early on that children have selective hearing. Have you learned that, your parent? Selective hearing. I tested my daughter one day. She was getting around that two-ish age, and I was wondering how much she really comprehended of the things I said. And So one day I was just doing a little test. She had some toys scattered out in the living room, and, and I, I asked her, I said, Honey, pick up your toys and take them to your room. And she, you know, dilly-dallying, da-da-da-da-da. She acted like she's playing dumb, like, I'm two, I know nothing, you know. And she didn't do it. And I said, hey, honey, go get in the van. We're going we're gonna to go get ice cream. She took off like a shot to the garage, right, to go stand by the door until she could be put in her car seat. And I realized, oh, I see. You just act like you don't hear what you don't want to hear. And when you hear what you want to hear, you act quickly on it. I've discovered that about people in church too, right? People come into church. <laughs> I've had people straight up tell me, church is a great place to take a nap. And, uh, and people come in and they just, you know, they get settled in. The music's over, the announcement's over, and they find a good spot. And, they just, and some people are talented. I mean, they can just, they can do it. Now, it's only when you have a snort or a head bob that people know you're sleeping. Like if you twitch hard or it's like, you know. Otherwise, people just get away with it. And people don't think I can see them. I can see you. I can see you sleeping. I can see you drooling. I can, I can see you. My grandfather, when he was almost 90, he went to church every Sunday. And he gave his life to Christ when he was like a 16-year-old kid in a tent revival meeting in Missouri, or Missouri as he calls it, from being from there. And he had hearing aids. So one day I was asking him, I said, Grandpa, people have told me that in congregational settings their hearing aids bother them, and you know, during the sermon and stuff. And, and he just smiled and said, mine never bother me. And I said, why? He goes, well, when we're visiting in the lobby, all the people, I have my hearing aids on so I can hear everybody. And when we come in and the preacher gets ready to preach, I turn both my hearing aids off. And as soon as the sermon's over, then I turn them back on. So they never bother me. He had ears, but he didn't want to hear. 
You're here tonight. Do you have ears? Do you want to hear? You know, God wants to talk to us. He wants to communicate with us. He wants to minister to us. And the way he's going to do that is faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. We are strengthened through God's word. And there are people that have a sensitive ear, a trained ear to hear the Lord. Do you remember the story of young Samuel? He's just a little kid. He's like four or five years old. He's in the house of the Lord serving. He goes to bed one night, and the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. And he thought Eli was talking to him. So he ran into Eli's bedroom. He goes, yes, sir, what do you want? He goes, I didn't call you. Go to bed. He goes back to bed. And the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. He ran back in. And he said, surely you called me. You called me Samuel, Samuel. And he goes, no, no. And then Samuel caught on. He goes, oh, the, Lord, the Lord's talking to you, Samuel. He had to train his ear to learn. And he goes, now go back to bed. And when the Lord says your name, say, here's your servant, Lord. What do you want to say? And so the Lord said, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Lord, your servant is here. What do you want to say? And the Lord shared with him a message that he had to share, a really hard message, actually, as a little kid, that he had to share with Eli the next day. We have to tune our ears into the Lord. And that's why the Lord is saying, hey, you have, who have ears to hear, Hear what I'm speaking to you. Don't tune me out. Light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time's trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa.